No dissenting opinions, so I'm assuming yes. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be totally in a different place today than we were in the past. In the past few weeks, we've been uh, going through the book of Colossians, the book of Philippians. Uh, we've, done, we've dealt with hope. We've dealt with um, uh, just a variety of different things, joy. Now we're getting into some old school stuff. Because I know some of you are like, well, that's great for the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? Back when it was, when it was, it was difficult to be a Christian, right? Where, where the rules were much more strong, much more, much more difficult. And we're going to get into that a little bit today. And I want you guys to look at the book of Habakkuk. I was talking to some folks uh, this week, or actually this week and last week, about the book of Habakkuk. And one person came to me and said, you know, I've never, never heard a sermon on the book of Habakkuk. Um, and it's a tiny little book. It's a three-chapter book, uh, three book. And, um, uh, and as I was going through my notes, one of the things I always try to do is um, I don't want to re-imagine re, uh, sermons over and over again. I mean, how many times can I pe- preach through the book of James um, in a single year? Well, I know... Mike would say as many times as you want, because the book of James is awesome, right? But the reality is, you know, we can, we can only retread some of this ground over and over again before we start to get repetitive. Um, and so I try to make sure that, I, that I'm not bringing you guys sermons that I brought you two years ago because I've forgotten about it. And so Casey and I did a search of, of, of all our calendar and, and everything else. And, and I did. I have preached the book of Habakkuk two or three times, but, but I haven't done it since 2010. And I got here in 2013. So, we, so I'm pretty much sure that you guys haven't heard me preach through this book yet. So um, I'm looking forward to as we go through it. Um, this is a really good book. So we're going to start off and I'm going to read uh, the book of Habakkuk uh, starting in the first verse of the first chapter. We're just going to read the first um, uh, four verses and uh, then we're going to talk about it, Then we're going to read uh, the next few verses and we're going to talk about that. And the reason why we're doing this is because Habakkuk is actually answering, asking questions from God as a prophet. And he's asking some really tough questions. Questions that were a major burden and frustration to him. And you'll see also a major frustration to many people today. And so as we read through this, I want you guys to be thinking about it. But, but God's word doesn't give us the question and leave us hanging like sometimes we see in the book of Psalms and other areas where, where the, the writer will, will throw out a question, but there isn't a clear answer. Um, in this case, we get answers. They may not be the answers we want, but it is definitely answers. God is taking a moment to answer his man in front of the entire nation of Judah and giving an answer that many of them don't like, but it is an answer nonetheless. So let's go ahead and just read through the first few verses here, and then we'll um, get started. So it starts off as an introduction, verse 1, chapter 1, book of Habakkuk. The oracle which Habakkuk, Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look upon wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists. Contention arises. Wow. That's pretty powerful when you think about it. I mean, it's almost like we're reading off of the front page of the newspaper today, right? Think about it. But he goes on, verse 4. He says, therefore, the law is ignored. Justice is never upheld, for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Oh, my goodness. Is this not straight from the news today? Might as well be. 
And we can all point to examples of things that we've read just this week or the week before of situations very similar to what Habakkuk is dealing with. So I know sometimes people ask me, why do we, why do we look at, at prophecies that were written 2,600 years ago? How can that have impact in our contemporary world? And, and honestly, some of the prophecies that you have in the Old Testament are a little scratching the head wondering why do we have this? I mean, the, con- the country of Edom no longer exists, but yet we have a prophecy that, that, that comes against them in several of the Old Testament prophet books. How can we take those particular books and make them uh, current to us today and and I think in each message you can find a level of contemporary um, uh, usefulness out of it but in this particular book this particular prophet it's like a hundred percent contemporary this message is the same over and over and over again largely because we live in a world today that's fallen we live in a world today where people are sinful that have issues and major problems and the same problems that we're dealing with today in the public is the same things that Habakkuk was dealing with 2,600 years ago. The same story over and over again. I once heard that, that God won't let us fail any test that he puts us through. He just makes us take it over and over and over again until we pass. And the sad part is there are many tests that society has failed over and over and over again and God is not letting them up and he keeps putting it forward. The reality is the the, the, the plans and the pathways that God put forth in his word that nations can live by, it's not that, the, it's not that they've been tried and they've failed. It's that they've never really been tried. The things that God has talked about from the Old Testament to the New, the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The, the, the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. He hasn't changed. And we're going to get into that a little bit in a few minutes, but as we begin to look at the God of the Old Testament and how he really is then and how he is today, and the reality is he hasn't changed. He's still the same holy, righteous redeemer that he's always been. He's always sought to lift his people to a place of prominence. He's always sought more people to come into his embrace because just as he was standing there on the hill above Jerusalem, as Jesus looked down, he began to weep. Three times he wept in the, in the, in the New Testament. Three times he wept. You know, if you want to do a study to find out when he really cried and what made him cry, you'll be amazed. And every time, and every time it was people, it was us. He wept over us. A desire to reach out and hold and to, to shelter and to save and to preserve. But knowing that in that desire to reach out that many are going to walk away. So we come to Habakkuk. It begins right at the beginning. And I know some of you are reading the, the New American Standard. I personally think best translation there is. I know that some of you might disagree, but that's okay. And it says the oracle. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. There are other versions that say the prophecy or the vision um, but it all means the same thing. The word oracle there actually in the Hebrew is a word named Masay. I know it's a I know it's trying to translate Hebrew letters into English. The best we could do is M-A-S-A, Masay. It's used 57 times in the Old Testament as a re- reference to a burden, a burden that you place on something or someone. It's only used twice in the entire Old Testament as 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 a prophecy. And we see here this idea of a prophecy is being used in light of Habakkuk. But we can also say, take this as a burden. This is a major frustration, a weight that he is carrying, a weight that every righteous person in Judah, when he was writing this book, was also feeling. You say, well, what, what could they possibly, what weight could they possibly have? 
Well, some of you who are brilliant biblical scholars and you know all about the time of Habakkuk would know instantly, as soon as I said Habakkuk, oh, that was around about 600 B.C. when it was written. It was right around the time that they had a, a really good king. His name was Josiah. Do you remember him? The good king Josiah. And he had been living, and, and there were some problems that were happening in the world, the geopolitical world he lived in. There was, a, there was a, a new king that was on the throne in Egypt, and he was flexing his muscles. And, and he didn't have a problem with, Egypt, or with, with Israel. He didn't have a problem with Judah, but he had a major problem with Babylon. So he wanted to send an army north to take out those horrible invaders and evil people up in Babylon. And so he comes up and he just said, hey guys, I've got this army. Don't need to worry about Jerusalem. We're going to sit right here. We're just going to camp out in your territory for a little while as we build a base of operations, get our supply lines situated. Tom, we know we need supply lines. The army only moves just so fast, right? And so it's not like Marines who can get in and get it done, right? These are not Marines, no, not even close. This is it's just straight up army, right? And so it's a slow plotting deal. They get they show up eventually to, to Jerusalem, you know, and they sort of spread out and get like all, you know, all army like, and they just sort of hang out there. And Jerusalem's like, uh, wait a minute now, no, that's not going to happen, and we're not going to do that. You can't sit in our territory and just hang out. It doesn't look good on us. And besides, your uniforms clash with our drapes. You can't stay. All right. So Josiah said, that's it, I'm the good King Josiah. And you say, well, what makes him so good? Josiah, when he was a little boy and he came onto the throne as a young man, he saw um, all the things that were happening in his nation. And he says, this can't stand. A guy that was cleaning out the temple found this scroll that everybody acknowledges was like the law, the Torah, the, the first five books of the Old Testament. And they read it and, and he got convicted. He, got, he just he said, I can't, we can't live without having this news for the whole people. He gathered a convocation of everybody in Israel and he gathered them together. They read the law and the entire nation repented. Talking about revivals. Imagine what that would happen if, if, if our president or our speaker of the house or whoever was the power that is just got up and got convicted by reading God's word. That would be awesome. That would be a great start. I mean, a lot of our problems would be solved right there. But what if they actually got on television and read the entire first five books, like cover to cover, you know? Now, do all Morgan Freeman on them, you know, and just have the, that wonderful rich voice and just start really reading the word of God and convicting the hearts of, of, of this nation? What would happen if the entire United States of America, as a, basically as a people, fell on our faces and repented our, our sins before a holy God? Imagine what we could accomplish if that happened. Pretty powerful. God can accomplish it. You're right. And I know it can happen, and I know it's happened many times in the past in our nation. And, we, and, we, and many theologians believe that we're on the cusp of maybe another great revival. I'd like to see that. I really would. I'd like to be able to have that next great revival in our time. I don't know if it'll happen or not, but I pray for it every day. And so this is what happened in the life of Josiah. And he's all riding that spiritual high. He, he, he fixed every of the problems. He tore down the high places and the altars and the idols. And he set the nation through the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through him on the right path. And so when the Egyptians showed up, he says, I've got to fix this. I don't know how well he prayed. I don't know if, if what really happened in this. I don't know if this was a judgment. We don't really get that information. But Josiah went and fought this pagan king from Egypt, and he died. And then his son was put on the throne over him by the Egyptians. His name was Jehoiakim. And this guy was not a good king at all. He followed the path of his former fathers, not his father. 
And he led the people back into a place that they shouldn't be. And so the righteous people in Israel, in Judah at the time were sitting there with their mouth hanging open saying, what? What just happened? How can this be? This was our king. This was the guy that was following in the footsteps of his father David. This is the guy that was going to lead us to victory. He had, the, he had God, the father, the king of all things, the creator of the universe standing behind him. And this happened. And all this happened right before this book was written. And so you see that burden, which is now on the prophet Habakkuk. And he's now having this vision, because the Bible clearly says that he saw this. Now, it doesn't explain how he saw it. It doesn't say whether or not he went into the throne room like other prophets did. But it said that, that he saw this. And I find it interesting that Habakkuk's only one of three men in the Old Testament that ever, ever had the term prophet used of them. We don't know anything about Habakkuk at all. In fact, he's just, a, this is really the only place that we have mentioned in, the, in, the, in, our, in our Bible. I know there's a couple of stories that were written um, uh, that we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that talk about him. One actually called him the, um, uh, the Habakkuk, the son of jo- uh, Joshua of the tribe of Levi, to try to connect him to, a, to a, a, a priestly line. But really, we don't have any information from him. We just saw that he has a burden. He was called by God. And he gave forth this prophecy, if you will. Habakkuk literally means, in the Hebrew, to caress or to hold tightly, to embrace. The idea is that he is embracing the message and his God, but deeply asking why. And so, this is his question. And I don't know about you guys, but I've asked this question in my life many times. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? Is this not a common call? Can anybody in here say, honestly, above the age of maybe 20, that there has not been times in your life you've called out to God and he's either not answered or the answer he's given is not the one you want to hear? So we use our selective hearing and we choose not to hear it. He says, I cry out to you, violence, and you do not save. That word cry is a Hebrew word that means battle cry. It's like he's standing outside the gates of, of wherever he's, he's, he's fording up. He raises the sword. He yells out, follow me to victory. And he's the only one running. Not much of a victory. That's the image that he's given us in the Hebrew. And yet you do not save. This is a tough thing. You know, Habakkuk comes from the line of old school prophets. The prophets in the Old Testament, they, they had their issues. They had things about them that, that they need to deal with. A lot of times, prophets in those days would proclaim a message that would impact the future and sometimes made predictions. But the very nature of, of this prophetic message primarily dealt with contemporary people and the needs they had before God. I heard one theologian called Habakkuk an eyeball-to-eyeball preacher. Tom, that's a pretty serious phrase. Eyeball-to-eyeball preacher. We had a guy who was a good friend of yours that came here, brother for the outlaw. And I would, if I had to, if I had to see a picture in my mind of an eyeball, eyeball preacher, the one that can spit and throw and yell and scream and really put you where you need to be, I would say Pastor Outlaw is probably that guy. He was, he was a serious preacher. There was no doubt about it. The man's been doing it for longer than I've been alive, and he is good at it. 
And he stood there, and he stood in this pulpit and preached, much like I think that Habakkuk was doing then. He was an eyeball-to-eyeball preacher. They called out the word from the Lord. They preached to the people in their own day. And the message that they preached oftentimes carries over, because it was so powerful, into a modern-day message that we have here today. This is the thing that we're looking at. This book that Habakkuk is, is writing is a strange, strange book. It's different from every single prophetic book in the Old Testament. This three-chapter book is so, departs so radically from all of its predecessors. I mean, think about it. Isaiah begins with, with God's complaint against his people. Jeremiah begins with this mysterious description of, of God's call, his call before he was even born. And then, consequently, Jeremiah then begins to raise a lament Ezekiel starts off with this, with this weird, theophantic experience. That's a big biblical word that means that he was called into the presence of God and he saw the wheel and the wheel and all this craziness that was going on that we still debate and discuss today because none of us really understand fully except for the fact that we can't understand God fully. And, and Ezekiel tries to explain that as best he could. Amos starts off with a more normal, if you can, theophany, which is a, a meeting between God and man, followed by these oracles against foreign nations, including Israel and Judah. Hosea begins, and this is a strange one, begins with an invitation to marry a harlot. Joel begins by asking uh, the people questions about the causes of their current additions, conditions. Obadiah opens with God's call to battle against Edom. Micah announces that God has arrived. Nahum begins with a confession of faith and a jealous uh, uh, faith in a jealous and avenging God of wrath. Zephaniah starts a straightforward discussion with an oracle of judgment. Haggai begins with God's condemning quotation of a complacent people refusing to do his work. Zechariah introduces a call to repentance immediately. Malachi begins with a confession of God's love for a people who don't love him. Interesting. But here we are in Habakkuk. And Habakkuk's cry cries out hauntingly amongst all the peers, asking simply why. Why is it when I call out to you, you don't come? I almost get the impression, as old as Habakkuk may have been when he wrote this, that he was a little child, alone in the woods, seeking his parent, who was nowhere to be found. It's a pretty stark image if you think about it. Habakkuk was echoing the desire of the people to get an answer. Why, God, did you allow this to happen? You know, it's interesting. It's within human nature to be complainers. We're actually pretty good at it. There ought to be a college, you know, degree on this. Don, you would appreciate this, having a degree in complaining. You know, I know there are several people here that are masters of this, right? In every church, that's the case. They already have their doctorate in complaining, and we're good at it, right? We complain about everything. But it's interesting that we, when we typically, when we complain, that we complain in the wrong directions, right? We, we talk about God, but we don't talk to God, right? We talk, we were mad at God, and we complain about God, but we don't bring our anger and our complaints directly to him. And I think the, the idea is, is that we need to know and understand really what he really is. And we need to, to shift our complaints and frustrations right to the source. Don't beat around the bush. Bring man up. Bring your, your issues to God. Talk to him directly. How many times do we ever really get down on our face and say, God, why is it that you led me to marry this individual? Why did you allow this child to be born to this family, right? 
Why is it that the job that I have is surrounded by, that I'm in, and I'm surrounded by absolute morons? That's every job, right? I was uh, talking to Tom about, um, about his military career, and, and Tom says there's always two idiots in your military career, the guy that came before you, that you replaced, and the guy that replaced you, right? So you're the only bright, intelligent spot in that mix, and that's probably the truth in, in every job. It's not just a military experience. The reality is, is that, that we can always find a reason to complain to the people before us and after us, but the truth is we hardly ever go directly to the source and complain where it, where it is. But I thought that as we're looking at this, before we get into God's answer, which starts in verse 5, we really need to look at who God really is. So, so put your finger in this spot. I'm going to put my, my phone and flip over to Exodus. We're going to go really old school, right? Exodus chapter 34. Can't get any more old school than Exodus, I'm telling you. I mean, this is like real wrath of God stuff here. God is really coming down and bringing the fire. And he's explaining to Moses who he is. He's explaining to Moses basically his credentials, his, his resume, if you will. So in Exodus chapter 34... We're going to look in, in verse 6 and 7. We're not going to do a whole lot, just in 6 and 7. This is the discussion that's happening. This is this covenant that's being renewed. And it says here, the Lord passed by in front of him, talking about Moses, and proclaimed. This is God proclaiming to Moses. The Lord, the Lord God, he's repeating who he is, compassionate. This is, this is him. Now remember now, this is God defining himself to Moses, the friend of God. Probably the, the, the most holy and humble man that's ever walked the earth other than Jesus, right? He is one of the only people that had the opportunity to spend not just 10 seconds, 10 minutes, or even 20 minutes in the presence of God, but almost an entire 40 years he spent in the presence of God, almost daily at times. This is a guy that, that is the kind of guy you want preaching for you. He's the kind of guy you want leading because he, he knew God so well that when he would come away from his time with God, he would reflect the shining glory of, of God. He would reflect that Shekinah glory so powerfully that the guys in Israel would come up to him and say, Moses, we can't handle the light that you have coming off of you when you go visit God. Can you wear a bag on your head or something? Because we can't handle this. This is the guy that God is talking to. And he's describing himself to Moses, and to the rest of us, he says, the Lord God, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. That's a serious God. This is pretty powerful if you think about it. This is the God that Habakkuk is asking, where are you when I need you? This is kind of a powerful moment if you think about it. It's the fullest description we have in the New and Old Testament of our holy God from God himself. Think about it. There are a lot of other descriptions about him from other people, but this is one of the only ones we have that are from the mouth of God himself. And he lays this down. And look what he says in verse 4. Back to Habakkuk. Habakkuk says, Therefore, based upon the argument that I just laid out, the law is ignored. 
Justice is never upheld. And then we come to the theme of this book. It's used twice in this particular verse. And anytime you see a, a repetition of a word, especially in something that's, that's written in more of a, a poetic form like you do in a lot of the prophets of the Old Testament, you know that these that when we mention it more than once, that there is, a, there is a, an emphasis that the writer is trying to bring out to us. He wants us to know the theme of this is justice and that justice is not being upheld. He's mad. This is the main theme. This is the main theme of the first question, and it flows over into the rest of it. It begins with this, justice is never upheld. It co- when it comes out, it comes out twisted and perverted. That's a pretty powerful statement. How many times do we feel like that we've gone into a meeting with a boss and come out asking, what just happened? And you went in thinking you were one of the better employees and came out knowing that if you, don't, if you have a job, you're lucky, and sometimes you come out without even a job. This is something that is kind of serious. We see it every day in our situations. But here's the response that God gives. And I want to, you know, my Bible, my study Bible says it's answer number one, but the reality is this is more of a response than an answer. And oftentimes we see this with God. He gives us a response to our questions. I mean, read through the book of Job. Job asks all these powerful questions of God, and God's like, dude, you weren't there when I created the universe. You don't put the wind underneath the the hawk's wings. You didn't light the original fires of creation. You didn't hang anything in the sky. How are you going to question me? Now, this isn't one of those kind of answers, but it's a pretty serious answer. Look what it says. And I love this first verse. We'll read verse 5. It says, look among the nations and observe. See, he says, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days that you would not believe if you were told. And we stop right there. Because we love to cherry pick our verses, right? Don't we? We love to pull out verses that, that are meaningful us for a moment. And we say, oh, that's the verse. That's what I'm going to cling to right there. Is look around the nations and observe. Great things are about to happen. And we don't read the rest of the verses where he says, the great things is I'm going to kill every last one of you. What? How many youth have carried that shirt on their t-shirt, or that, that phrase on their t-shirt, thinking that this is the time, right? But if you read the rest of it, he's like, I'm about to really open up a can on you guys. Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, a fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth and seize dwellings that aren't theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate only in themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They are like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them are coming for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are laughing no matter are laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress. They heap up rubble to capture it. They will sweep through the wind, sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. Basically, in, in Old Testament poetic speech is, get ready for a lot of pain because we're about to really do some serious, serious things to you. And, you know, you should, be, you, should, you should think about that, and we should recognize that. And if we would, if we just looked at a better sort of translation of the word be astonished or wonder, because that word in the Hebrew is actually a much, much more difficult word. It's not just simply be amazed. And we think of amazement, we think of like amazing grace. That's wonderful. We think of you know, all those other amazing things that we like, because that word amazed is like, what that word really means is to be utterly amazed, to be 
to freeze with fear, to be horrified in terror and unable to move. That's what the word really means. That's pretty powerful when you think about it. He's saying, he's like, okay, you want to talk? Let's talk, Habakkuk. I want you to look around all these other nations. I want you to observe what's happening in the world around you and understand that you're going to be terrified so much you're going to be rooted to the ground and you're not going to be able to move as I unfold these events around you and it's going to really mess you up. And if you read about this years to come, you wouldn't believe it. That's how bad it's going to get. You think it's dark now, it's going to get darker. You think this whole thing about Josiah, your beloved king, is dead and that I should be concerned about this? Let's go a step further and see what really is going to happen here. Because this is something that, that I think is a powerful moment in his life, in the life of the Israelites, but also with ours too. And everybody says, well, and I see this every time we have a, a political cycle, every time that we have new elections come around, everybody pins their hopes on the new guy or the new gal. This is going to be the one. We're going to follow this person to the gates of hell. They're going to be a re, a Christianity reformed. Our nation's going to be transformed. Everything's going to be new. We're pinning our hopes on a person, not Jesus. The reality is there is an earthly leader on this planet that's going to lead the planet the way Jesus could or and will. We know that when we have a God that is powerful enough to do this, but we know that sometimes it gets darker before it gets light. The discussion that they have in verse 6 about these, these Chaldeans, they're fierce and impetuous. Look what it says there. It's ruthless. That word fierce is ruthless. They're hasty. And the worst description they have is in verse 7 where it says that their justice and authority only originate in themselves. Look at the final judgment in verse 11. It says that their strength is their God. That's pretty powerful. So now Habakkuk is looking at this and I'm, I know he's sitting back. And we don't know again how this vision happened. It could have been any number of ways. But I, I just kind of imagine that this is a dialogue between him and God and things are just sort of written down in front of him. He's writing this out. He's talking to God. And then God sort of sits down in his living room and is having a chat with him and, and, and he's sort of keeping notes. And, and God says, well, you know, this is it's going to happen like this. And I can almost see Habakkuk's jaw just dropping as God lays this on him. That not only did a good king Josiah be killed by a pagan king, but God is going to use one of the most pagan nations that's ever existed on the face of this earth. And he's going to use that nation to chastise God's people. And I'm sure he's asking why. I'm sure he's at, in fact, the very next question in chapter in verse 12 is going to get to that. And we'll get that next week as he begins to ask that second question, which is, why are we using pagan people to, to deal with God's? God's anointed, God's called, God's chosen. We're in that same situation right now. The state of the United States, the North American church, is abysmal. I was looking at studies just recently, and they're saying that the, the church is on the decline. That our church is, is, as a whole, as, as, as believers on the, in this nation, if we start to, to actually calculate the number of true believers that are here, we're on the decline. But you want to know something? The nature of Christianity is not on the decline in the world. It's just here in North America because we're walking further and further away from the truth. We're embracing this new idea that there is no real truth and we're looking, at to the, to the, to the, we're looking to the state and to the government for salvation rather to God and God alone. And you look at some of these other countries in the world like South America. I know it's not a country. It's a collection of countries, but, but roll with me for a minute. You look at South America as a group, as a, as a whole, 
Do you realize that Christianity is growing like 300 to 400% every single year in that country and has been for a long time? Some people say that the next great revival won't happen in the United States. It's going to happen in places like South America and Africa as God's spirit begins to move and the nature of Christianity begins to change. You say, well, how can that be? Everybody knows that the center of all Christianity is Alaska, right? I would agree, because I'm here, right? No, and some say, well, that's not true. Obviously, it's in Rome, right? Or it's here, or it's there. You know, the reality is, every other single religion on the planet has a place of origin, and that place of origin is where they're most fervent. You look at Mecca and the area of the Muslim faith. It's, it's, it's still a Middle Eastern religion. They export it, but that's the core, right? You look at Hinduism, India, that's the core. You look at Buddhism in, in China and in, in the Far East, that's the core. And they haven't really branched out much from that. they got a lot of people there that follow their, their gods or whatever, but for the most part, they don't really branch out. Christianity has always been on the move. It has rejected any permanent location, just like the, the children of Israel in the wilderness that would pack up the tabernacle and take it with them. We've done that as well. And guess what? Christianity is on the move again. And if we're not careful, we'll miss the train. How do we miss the train? Well, we embrace the things of the world and not the things of God. Amen. We reach into the world and we say, government, solve my problems. Job, solve my problems. Hey, lady, you're cute. Solve my problems. We do it. We do it all the time. We don't preach the word of God. We don't preach hell, death, sin, consequences. And so consequently, we have a watered-down faith that's no good for anybody. The New Testament talks about it in the book of, the book of uh, Revelation. He says that you become neither hot nor cold. And Jesus said, hmm, just right, right? No. He said, I'm going to spit you out. Because nobody likes lukewarm water. That's where we're at today. We see this. I wrote down four things that characterized the nation of Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Four things that represented them. Cruelty, arrogance, self-sufficiency, haughtiness, and blasphemy. These are the four things that they were being sort of condemned with. And I look at those things, and for the most part, I see a lot of them in our contemporary society today. Some would say that America is not cruel, but I think we could get into serious discussions about that. And maybe I think that I could change your mind to say there's a lot of cruelty in this nation. A lot of arrogance and self-sufficiency. A lot of haughtiness. We rely way too much on strength. And guess what? Guess who the God of the United States is? Money and strength. That's the way it is. We can change that. We can make a difference. It begins here, right? And we need to ask ourselves, how do we been, how are we being called to be to, to bring that to a new place? And some of us so sometimes you can ask me, well, why is all this happening? Why did this happen to Jerusalem? Why is this happening to us today? And I think there's a reason for it. And I, I was praying about this this week and I was really trying to to, to get because I kept asking this question, why? Why God? Why are you doing this? Why'd you do it then? Why are you doing it now? Why do we seem to have a slew of these bad actors that keep taking reins of power in our country and we keep voting them in and then we scratch our head and wonder why they don't do very good and, and I and I ask myself, why does this keep happening over and over and over again? And I think it comes back to this is that God needs to continue to remind us that he is not a regional deity. It was more, more apparent back in those days because every city-state in those days had their own god. The Chaldeans had their own god, the, the Babylonians, the, the Egyptians, they all had their own gods, right? And Israel had their god, just like all the other nations. 
And they liked their God. They built a beautiful temple. They sang praises to him. They wrote wonderful phrases and poems and other things to this God. This was their God. And they always looked at their God as their own God. And they're just kind of like, it's ours. You can't have him. Go away. Right? It's our regional deity. It's better than your regional deity. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo. God's like, you can't put me in a box. I created the universe. I'm bigger than anything you could possibly imagine. And he's trying to say that to us today. He's saying that he's not a regional God. The God of the, uh, of the universe, the God of this Bible, the God that, that sent his son to die on the cross because we had sin and we couldn't give, come to him, and the God that was willing to do whatever it took to restore humanity to the place that he wanted them, which is his sons and daughters that can be able to come into his, his presence and ask anything of him, the kind of God that wants to just transform us from the inside out and recreate the universe in a way that is completely sinless the way it was originally created, this particular God will not be confined, and he is not the God of the United States. Amen. He's not the God of Russia. He's not the God of any single location. He is the God of all, all, all creation. And he needs to remind us that. And when we bicker about whether or not these immigrants need to come across our borders, we need to ask ourselves, where does God's borders begin and end? I think scripture says about east and the west, the beginning of creation and the end of creation and everything in between and the edges around the outside of both of those creations. He is God of all or he's God of none. And I think that's what he's reminding us. So if you're sitting there and you're asking, I've got these questions and I don't know if where God is and I'm in the midst of a crisis and I'm calling out but I'm not hearing it and I'm crawling out to God and I feel like my prayer is bouncing off the ceiling and hitting me in the face and it's, I'm not going anywhere and, and nothing is getting done and nothing is moving in the right direction. Is God really there? My answer to you is yes, he is. Yes, he is. And I can promise you this, that if you take some more time and spend it in his word, sometimes the answer is wait. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is not yet. Sometimes the answer is definitely it's coming. Just be patient. We're coming to the end of our service time, and, and we have an opportunity to be able to open up our altar. And I, I really like our altar. The only thing I don't like about it, and maybe we ought to address this at some point in the future, is and I grew up in the Episcopal sort of Catholic world. And, and Tom, you'll probably, you, you remember this. They always have cushions down there, you know, for, for those old people like me whose knees don't work as well, right? And so I would love for us to have some, maybe we ought to just have like pillows in the pew, and you can take them with you, you know, and carry the pillow up and use that. Maybe that might be uh, aesthetically pleasing. I don't know. But either way, whether you have a pillow or not, you can still use the altar to pray and I know some people say well that's an archaic thing why do we even use the altar anymore we don't do that anymore altar calls are uh, for the 50s and the 40s and beyond and we don't do that anymore the reality is the altar has never stopped being a call it's never stopped being effective and sometimes you need to come down front and in our day and age where everything is so self-sufficient and cloistered and hidden you know we and I hear it all the time well I don't want everybody to know that I'm going through a problem well then that's your first problem right there because we're the body of Christ if you can't tell the body of Christ that you're in pain, then how is the body of Christ supposed to know? How can we come around and help you if you don't come forward? So the altar is open for anyone that has a need, a struggle, a frustration, a cry that they're, they're offering to God and it's not being answered. But, you know, it's not just that. Sometimes you want to come up and just, in an attitude of worship, just lay down a praise before him. I heard the most amazing set of praises today um, from one of our guys in Sunday school. He was talking about how 
The father, the father has, has healed him to the point where his doctor doesn't understand. He kept saying, that's not supposed to do that. That's not supposed to grow like that. That's not supposed to be, be healed. And then he talked about a friend of his in South Carolina, a pastor that had come up here before that's dealing with, with colon cancer, Brian. And I didn't know this. This is the first time I've heard that Brian Lee, the guy that's come here with our teams, and he's preached here, and he's, he's a friend of First Baptist Kenai, and he's dealing with colon cancer. Now that I know he's on my prayer list, I'm going to pray for him every day. But he's going to the doctor, and I I think uh, Dan was telling me that, that, that he went into the doctor's office and there was a spot of coal, like where cancer used to be. And he said, I don't know who worked on that before, but they did a good job. And he's like, nobody worked on it. I would say that's, that's probably the wrong answer, right? We know who worked on it. We know it was the God above. We know it was a great physician who touched him and healed him. And that's a powerful thing. And I love it when doctors walk away from x-rays or, or a hospital room scratching their head and saying, man, didn't see that coming. Some of you guys are walking, talking miracles as we live and breathe right now. Sometimes you come to the altar because you're so overflowing with praise, you can't not contain it, and you want to come down. And let me tell you something. I, like many preachers, would be glad to give you a microphone if you want to just lay it before God and stand up and say, hey, I want to share this praise with you guys. The same way we say I need to share my prayer request with you guys. Some of you guys are sitting there today and you're saying, all these praises and prayers and all these burdens and things are, are maybe neat, but the reality is I've never had God ever answer me. Well, maybe if God has never answered you, maybe it's because you're not his. He protects and guides his own. Sometimes protection looks a little weird to us at the moment, but when we look back, we realize God had it in control. And I can tell you that if you're not his, he's not obligated to help you. So it begins with salvation. I had a young man this week who went to me, he had a lot of needs, really struggled in a lot of areas in his life. And, and for some reason, he really wanted to go really far. He wanted to be able to say, oh, I want to do this and I want to do that. I want to be an astronaut. I want to do this. You know, he had all these great dreams of the future of things that he could and wanted to do. The reality is that all that stuff is nice, but you need to get the base stuff taken care of. It begins with your salvation and your condition with Jesus Christ. You can't do anything without that firm foundation that is Jesus. And either you are a child of the king or you're not. And if you're not a child of the king, I can tell you this, you can be this morning. The altar is going to be open. We've got a number of men and women here would love to lead you from God's word and show you exactly what it says and how to be saved. And I know I make this plea every single week. And, you know, very few people come to me during, the, during this time and say, I want to be saved. I would love to see that finish. Back when I was growing up in the 80s and the 70s, this happened all the time. You always heard these stories of these, these mass movements of people coming down, filling the altar, wanting to be saved. You don't see that as much anymore. I think it's a reflection of our soul rather than God's call. He's not changed. He's still calling. He says, today's the day of salvation. He says, get yourself right. I could be one of those preachers, like I know Pastor Outlaw had, a really, had some really good phrases when he was up here, some good stories that really tugged our hearts and made us want to move, and he's, he's been doing this a long time. And I never wanted to be one of those preachers that say turn or burn, but the reality is this, that there's a heaven to gain and there's a hell to run away from, right. period. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. It's not a lollipop and a Ferris wheel. Hell is not a place you run towards. I've heard people say that, well, I'm going to go party down in hell with all my friends. <laughs> go ahead and try that, see how it's doing. Tell me how that worked for you. I'd love to know. Because the only discussion that I've ever seen in the New Testament about hell was from a guy who did party before he went and thought life was going to be great afterwards. He gets there and it just messed him up. Jesus told a story about Lazarus, the beggar, and the rich man. 
We never got a name for the rich man. And I know some of you are going to say, well, that was a parable. That was just a story. No. You read through the parables of Jesus. Every single parable of Jesus is always a, it was always a, a, a hypothetical person. This was somebody with an actual name. Lazarus. He was a beggar. There was a rich guy who is unnamed. He was in so much pain and torment, he was begging for a single drop of water on his tongue. So, Tom, I can say turn or burn. I'm not burning. And I don't wish that on my worst enemy. And I beg you, if you don't know Jesus, don't leave here today without getting your heart right. For the rest of you guys, I encourage you to read through the next part of this book and begin to wrap your brain around what Habakkuk is trying to ask from God and what God is trying to answer to Habakkuk. And see how we can use these answers to share the love of God with those that need it. Because if you remember that passage in, in, in Exodus, he is a righteous and loving God. He is one who will, is willing to forgive. He's willing to give that covenantal love away. He wants to bring as many people in as he can. But he's also a righteous and holy God that will exact judgment from the guilty. So where do you stand today? Are you guilt-free before the Lord because he's taken your sin away? Or are you filled with guilt for the sin that you are with nothing between you and God except judgment? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Lord, as we seek to end our service, Lord, we know that the service never really ends. The altar call never really goes away. We stand before you as paupers, desperately needing something from you. Lord, we ask that you will guide our understanding, our hearts, and our thoughts. And help us to seek you in all we do and say. Father, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, please bring them forward and allow them to come to know you as their Savior as they begin a new life, a new creation. And behold, all things are new and the old has passed away. We ask that promise this morning to anyone that would, would seek you. For the rest of us, Father, that know you and love you, I ask that you will put a burden like Haggai, and I mean Habakkuk, in our hearts that we might take that burden to a nation that needs to hear it. And we can let them know there is hope. Justice may be coming, but there is hope. Father, we love you and we thank you. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.